Well, this morning I want to share, and I'm going to try not to go into too much detail, but I'm excited to share with you. The more I study the Word, the more I fall in love with the Word. It's absolutely brilliant. So I wanted to just touch on something this morning and just bring it to you. How many of you know Isaiah 60 verses 1 to 3? I mean, the whole chapter you could look at. But if I say Isaiah 60, what's the first thing you think of? Come on, all the clever people that know the Word. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon thee. That is such a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture. And this morning I want to connect it to another passage of Scripture. But let's just finish it. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. It says, darkness, verse 2, that behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people... And just hold it there. I mentioned it on uh, Christmas Day on Friday, and I think I, rem- I mentioned it the last week. But those sitting in darkness have seen a great light. And uh, it says, darkness shall cover thee, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. Now, how many of you take that verse? I take it. So darkness is on the face of the people, but his light and his glory is upon us. I believe that in the coming days, we're going to see a greater distinction between the world and the church, darkness and light. Is that okay? We've seen it now during the COVID thing. We've seen it now with all the agendas that are being pushed. You know, the LGBTIQ, whatever, and whatever other letters go with it, the cancel culture thing, the, you know, all the gender, you know, rubbish that is going on. And that is being pushed as an agenda, even from the European Union and those places. And we are being forced to accept those things that are not godly. And so, but the light will shine brighter. Amen. The glory of the Lord is risen. We need to know that. And in verse 3, I just love it because he says, And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness, the NIV says, of thy dawning. The King James says, of thy rising. So the Gentiles shall come to thy light, the people, the unsaved. And even kings shall come to the brightness of thy rising. Now, how many of you take those verses? I take them. So I just want to hold those verses up on the screen for now, or that verse on the screen, and then we're going to go somewhere. But I need to prefix it by just saying this. I love Christmas so much. It's a pity to me that we only celebrate it one day. In the more traditional churches, they celebrate Christmas for a very long time. There's a Christmas carol that they sing, you know, the 12 days of Christmas, partridge in a pear tree and all of this kind of thing. But they celebrate Christmas for 12 days after the 25th of December, 25th of December being the first day of Christmas, then they'll go second, third, fourth, and it ends on January the 6th as being the 12th day of Christmas. Now, in the traditional churches, they celebrated every facet, and I think that somewhere in the, in the mix of it, we need to find the balance, because we threw the baby out of the bathwater. All the religion and the, the stuff that came with it, we chucked it all out. And now, you know, Jesus gets a brief mention on Christmas Day, and a little bit over Easter, but they have got long periods of celebration, even building up to Easter. In some aspects of the church, they even go all the way and celebrate right through to remembering even the baptism of Jesus, the circumcision of Jesus, the purification of Mary. But anyway, I don't want to run ahead of myself. So on the 6th of January, they have a celebration, a feast, and a ceremony called the Feast of the Epiphany or the Epiphany. Now, the word epiphany means the revealing or the revelation. 
And so that would happen on the 6th of January. Now, in the traditional churches, they saw, and the passage that we're going to look at now is in Matthew chapter 2, when the Magi, some translations, the kings, some the wise men, came to visit Jesus and to bring gifts. And we find that recorded in Matthew chapter 2. It's really interesting that the, the Catholic Church basically see three times when the divinity of Jesus was revealed. I think there's more. But they see three. They see it that his divinity was revealed here with the Magi when they came, because they came with gifts honoring a king. And they saw the divine Son of God as the king of Israel. And so his divinity was revealed. I see some who've got familiar with the background nodding. Us charismatics and Pentecostals are going like, wow, really? And, <laughs> and uh, yeah. so this is good information this morning, okay? Yes. So it's, it, you, you'll see. You, you'll get something from it. And um, the second time that his divinity was revealed, they saw, was at his, let me just try and remember their order. Oh, that's right, at his baptism. When the heavens opened and God spoke and said, this is my beloved son, the spirit descending him in bodily form like a dove. And the third that they see was in John chapter 2, when it specifically says, when he turned the water into wine, it says, thus he revealed his glory to the disciples. Remember? So they see three. I see more. I see the transfiguration. I see the crucifixion when the centurion said, behold, this was the son of God. And probably there's others as well. But they see that. And so the 6th of January would mark the epiphany. Now, in those traditional churches, they never gave gifts on Christmas Day. What they did was they'd give gifts. So please listen. I think we need to start this. They give gifts every day for 12 days. <laughs> Woo, thank you, Jesus. How many of you can feel Christmas is changing? <laughs> and so it ended on the 6th of January with the day of epiphany, the, the remembrance some in later traditions, the 12 days giving gifts fell away, and all the gifts were brought on the day of the 6th of January, the day of the Epiphany, because that was the day that the Magi came and gave their gifts gold, myrrh, and frankincense. And so it's rich and it's powerful. Some churches take it even further, they take it to the 2nd of February. And so they include the Epiphany on the 6th of January, the visit of the wise men. And they go all the way through, and you'll pick this up in Luke chapter 2 from verse 21, that on the eighth day, Jesus, the Bible says Jesus was, was circumcised. Now, the Bible is very quiet as to where he was circumcised, because when a mother gave birth to a child, she was declared unclean, and uh, she had to go through the purification uh, of her blood for, if it was a boy, for 40 days. It was actually for the first seven or eight days, and then another 33 days afterwards. But it normally ended on the 40th day according to the Levitical law. If it was a girl being the firstborn, you know, girls are much more unclean than guys. So it was like about 60 days, 66 days. So it was, you know, so us guys are really special. I just want you to know we were almost born holier than women. And uh, <laughs> so, so I, I don't know why all of that, but so on the day of a purification, so on the 40th day, Jesus was presented in the temple, and uh, it was also the purification of Mary. And so Jesus was presented. We know um, Hannah, the prophetess, was there. Simeon, the righteous man, was there, and they both prophesied. And Jesus was dedicated in the temple. Just very, very powerful time. And so in the traditional churches, the 40th day, they would have a service, a celebration, a festival called candle mass. 
And um, it celebrated, you know, sort of the circumcision, the presentation of Jesus, the cleansing of Mary. And uh, what they would do, they would bring candles, which they'd had from Christmas, and the priest would bless the candles. And the people were then able to take the candles home and utilize them for the rest of the year. And the symbolism of it was they would light the candles for the rest of the year, signifying that Jesus is the light of the world. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Isaiah chapter 60. So there's richness of tradition that we miss out on. And uh, how did I come up with this message? Well, because on Friday evening, I was sitting there going, like, oh, Christmas is over for another year. Then I thought, what about the day after Christmas? <laughs> so I started thinking and reading. I mean, I, I've just read volumes and volumes of stuff. And so I think that we need to just prolong Christmas a little bit and see the value of it. But when the Magi came, the wise men, it's just very interesting. But So maybe we should just read a few verses. Can we go to Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1? And uh, just powerful verses. Remember what I said, and I've been saying it the last few weeks. Nothing in Scripture is recorded by happenstance. Just soma because. Everything is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it is there for a reason. Why is this seemingly disconnected story in the Bible? And Matthew is the only one that records it. Mark doesn't, Luke doesn't, and John doesn't. They've all got different vantage points when they write. Matthew was very much writing from a Jewish perspective to a Jewish audience. And what he was writing was in, was in order, his purpose was to convince the Jews that Jesus is the king. So he includes this story. And so when he writes, this is the record, verse 1, the King James translation. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, notice Herod the king. Now, between the Romans and the Jews, Herod was appointed as a king, and he was the king of the Jews in that sense. There came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. Some writers put in kings, some magi. Uh, Magi is a word that almost means magician or astrologer. And so these wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, okay? So they came from that place, more or less on the same parallel to them, to the east. That would be in the region of Persia. That would be in the region of Mesopotamia. It's a very interesting story, and I'm going to just try and give you the story. It's going to take on new meaning for you. It's really powerful. And they came saying, where is he? That is born king of the Jews. Wow. Powerful. Now they go to a king over the Jews. And they say, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Now you know that's going to cause conflict. Is that right? You know that's going to unsettle the present king. And they say, for we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with them. They were worried. They were not rejoicing. And it says, and when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where the Christ should be born. Isn't it amazing? Even Herod knew that there were prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures concerning the Christ. So he's now worried because here come these magi. And let me just throw a little bit in, you know, I'm going to chuck these things in now. The magi came from the east. In all of our Christmas cards, we see three magi. And the reason why they put three magi, three wise men, is because they brought three gifts. Yeah. 
But tradition tells us that there were as many as up to 300 of them. And they came on horses and they brought gifts with them. You know, we see little boxes like this that they could carry. They say they were at least treasure chest size that they brought. Gold, myrrh, and frankincense. And they are listed in the order of their value, the least being gold. Gold was of less value than myrrh and frankincense. So it was in ascending value that um, Matthew describes that they brought gold. Well, you know, gold was pretty commonplace those days. And then they brought myrrh, and then they brought frankincense. But they reckon there was wagon loads that needed camels, and they needed a small army to guard those treasures because of their value. So a powerful big, it wasn't three guys, you know, eastern-looking oriental guys following the star, you know, coming on their camels into Jerusalem. No, no, no. It was an army of people that came. And they came into Jerusalem, and they're going, okay, where is he that's born the king of the Jews? No wonder Herod was afraid. They say conservatively, conservatively, the estimated value, and an accountant put a value on it some years ago, so it's even more now. They conservatively say the gifts amounted to a value of 120 million U.S. dollars. That's not far short of 2 billion rand that they came with. Come on, church. Isn't the Bible awesome? And so they brought all of these gifts, and, and I want to just walk you through it. So the Magi come, and then they say this, and then here it's going, where is it in the Scriptures? Tell us where it's going to be. And they replied, and they're saying, well, Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says this, verse 6, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. That's another way of saying a king. Then Herod, when he had privately or privately called the wise men, inquiring of them diligently, when did the star appear? Because he was trying to work out then how old would the baby be. And he sent them to Bethlehem. He said, go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, Jesus no longer in the sort of the stable part. You know, he's older now. Now they're living in a house, the front part of the house. You know, not the sort of area where they would include with the animals. And so there's a whole lot more that we could say on that. And they found Jesus in a house with great joy. And they saw the young child with, the mother, with his mother Mary and fell down and worshipped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, and frankincense. And, more. and then God graciously warns them in a dream they shouldn't go back to Herod, and they depart another way back to their own country. Now, they came from the east. Um, we're going to just pause there, and we're going to pick it up on, in verse 13 just now. In 606 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar, it's the judgment of God. God had warned Israel and warned Israel and warned Israel. He invades Jerusalem, Judea, and that's the beginning of the exile. In 606 BC, some young men are taken, the best, the wisest, the smartest, the cleverest, the most good-looking, 
and they're taken in more or less in an early deportation, and they're taken into Babylon. And among them are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with Daniel. And they're taken in, and you know the whole story of the book of Daniel. You can go and read it. They're taken in, and um, in them is recognized the spirit of the gods. They're not like ordinary people. They refuse to eat the king's diet. They have a diet of their own, and uh, the captain of the God that's in charge of them graciously lets them eat their own foods, and uh, they do better than all the others on the king's diet of rich food. So Daniel is very soon elevated because he serves God, keeps his integrity. Now, you've got to remember he's probably 15, 16 years old. They castrate him so that he can then be close to the king and not, you know, get involved in the king's harem. He's taken out of his country, taken out of his culture. He'll never be able to marry and have children and things like this. But God had a special plan for him. That's what happened in those days. And just in case you thought your life was tough. And he's put into this foreign land, but he still serves God. And um, increasingly, as the, you know, his time goes on in the place of exile, he searches Scripture more and more, reads the prophecy of Jeremiah that their captivity would be 70 years, starts to pray that God would release his people and get them back to their own land. But before that, you know, God has got a plan. God has got a plan for our lives, and that's why we need to keep walking with God. Because in some insignificant way, seemingly, you know, in the worst of situations, God may give you a word. I mean, you just think of Joseph when he was in prison, getting a word for the butler and the baker and the candlestick <laughs> And eventually he's elevated to second in charge of Egypt. Same with Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he wakes up in the morning, calls all the magi, all the astrologers, all the magician, calls them all in. And uh, Daniel is listed amongst them because of their wisdom. And he says, well, okay, I've had a dream. I want you to interpret the dream. So they say, tell us the dream. He says, I can't remember the dream. You tell me the dream and give me the interpretation. And you thought you had it tough sometimes when God puts you on a spot. Hey? And uh, so otherwise, I'm going to take off all your heads because then you're useless. So Daniel goes, whoa, 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 you know, there's a God in heaven. He's the giver of dreams. Let me, let's go and pray. So he goes and prays with his buddies, comes back, and he says, this is what you dreamed, king, statue. You know the story. He interprets it. Daniel is then put in charge of all of the astrologers because he can interpret dreams. And he says, you know, the interpretation of dreams belongs to the God of heaven. So right there, Daniel is starting to serve God with his time, his talents, his treasures, and his testimony. And that's what I want to bring to you this morning. And so he interprets the dream, and the king is absolutely amazed. He told me the dream, and he told me the interpretation. He's put in charge. Later, a plot develops, all the other satraps, because now it's not Babylon, it's the Medo-Persian Empire. And now the king is Darius. And besides, you know, he had interpreted the writing on the wall. But now they're jealous. There's 120 satraps. You can read it in Daniel 6. And over the 123 sort of presidents or princes, super princes are put in charge, one of them being Daniel. But they become very jealous of Daniel. They watch his life to see if they will trip him up in some way with sin. But they can't find. And they said, the only way we're going to be able to do it is trip him up with the law of his God. So they go to Darius and they say, you know what? What you should do is pass 
an irrevocable law according to the Medes and the Persians that if anyone prays to their God, they must be thrown into the den of lions. And of course, that was to trap Daniel because he was praying faithfully three times a day and he was praying for the restoration of his people back because of the prophecy of Jeremiah. Well, he just said, well, I'm, I'm not going to do it. Throws open his windows as before. And, you know, in those days, people didn't just call you names. You know, they would chop off your head or, in this case, throw you into a den of hungry lions. And so, just in case you ever thought your persecution was really tough, I thought I'd just mention it, you know, and for myself. And so, of course, the trapper said, and uh, Daniel continues to pray, they throw him into the lion's den. He spends the night with the lions. And I just love the, the story in the song, you know, when we used to do children's church. Daniel was a man of God. Daily prayed he three times. You know, till one day they threw him in. And God just shut the lion's mouth. So, so it's true. That's what happened. And, uh, you know, you have to feel sorry for the lions when you throw a man of God into the den. And God shut their mouths. They never touched, never touched him. And uh, in the morning, Darius comes running, and he's, like, really concerned because he could not change the law he had passed. And Daniel, are you there? And Daniel answers. Darius writes a decree, and just so that we know that the lions were hungry, the satraps were thrown in there, and they were devoured. Yeah. And just then, Darius writes a decree, and he said, to the whole territory, and he says, all of you need to tremble at the God of Daniel and revere and worship him. For he is steadfast and faithful, and his kingdom shall be established and never cease. What a prophecy. Woo! Come on, you got to love the word, man. All because of one man, Daniel. All because Daniel stood up. Darius prophesies exactly the prophecy to Nebuchadnezzar. In the days of the feet of the kings, you know, those kings, the iron and the clay mixed, a rock from heaven, the kingdom shall fill the earth. And, uh, you know, and it's going to take over. And so yet Darius, this Medo-Persian king, prophesies the coming king and kingdom of God that shall be established and shall never cease. Come on, just say amen. Man. It's just, like the word is gorgeous, eh? And so this happened all the way down there in Daniel 6. That verse I'm telling you about is Daniel 6 verse 26. So anyway, what's it got to do with Matthew chapter 2? Everything, everything. You know later, when you go into Daniel 9 and then 10, 11, 12, but 9 and 12 particularly, but 9 from verse 24, when he's praying and saying, okay, when is the 70 years up? When is it going to happen? When are all these things? And the angel Gabriel comes and he says, you know, 70 weeks of seven is decreed for you, your people, and your city. And you can include the temple. There's going to be 69 weeks of seven, and then there's going to be a, a 70th week of seven. And that's going to take you right up to the time of the Messiah where he will be cut off. Cut off is a Hebraism for he will die. And so the influence Daniel had over all these satraps, over all these magi, was profound. Because now they'd been commanded to worship Daniel's God. So now these astrologers are doing Bible study with Daniel. And Daniel is basically saying, hey man, you know, this is going to happen and there's a king coming and there's a kingdom because that's what I saw with Nebuchadnezzar and now Darius. And he says, and, and you know, and he's teaching them and it's going to be 70 weeks of seven. They watch his life. They see things fulfilled. 
probably also reading the Old Testament scriptures because they know now even Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come. They know other verses. They know other verses. They know, for example, that in Exodus, that a priest was to begin his priestly service at the age of 30. So taking Daniel's prophecy, they were able biblically to work out a timeline and an approximate time when this king would be born. They work it out, studying the scriptures. So they're from the east. They're from that area. But meanwhile, you know, the nations have changed. You know, kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. It was the Babylonian, then the Medo-Persian, and uh, then it was the Grecian Empire. That was the Greeks under Alexander the Great. When his kingdom fell, four captains took over, and they started, you know, four other very powerful kingdoms, and one of them was the Parthians, which was still in that particular section. But by now, the Magi had grown so powerful that they were a priesthood by the time of the Perthians. They were a priesthood. Who said that's true? I, that's awesome. So I'm telling the truth. Eh? Yeah. So now they're a priesthood. And their role was to protect the king. And in fact, they were called, in their culture, they were called kingmakers. That's what they were called in the cultures, kingmakers. But even you read in the book of Daniel, they were there to protect the king, to honor the king, to serve the king, to interpret the signs, interpret writings and things like that for the king so he would know how to rule and to reign. So by now, the Magi is an established order, powerful, influential people. But listen, they're still Gentiles. So arise, shine. He says, the Gentiles will come to the light. Even kings will come to the light of your dawning. That scripture was prophetic of Jesus, including prophetic of us. So literally, Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled when they form this train of armored men, of gifts, and 300 of them come and say, where's this king that was born? Now, what about the star? Remember the story of Balaam? Remember how Balak tried to bribe him to curse Israel, the people when they were coming up, and he took three different vantage points, but all he could do was prophesy. Because what God has blessed, no man can curse. So he tried to go to divination and soothsaying, and he would try, and he would try to speak a curse. But he couldn't. The people of God are just so blessed, you know. You know, I, I just want you to understand it from their point of view. Yeah, they are just camping there, minding their own business, and they're just following the cloud and this kind of thing. And they don't know this plot that's going on in the background where, where someone's hired this powerful prophet to curse them. They're just minding, they're just collecting the manner and just carrying on. And, um, you know, it's like us. You don't have to worry about all that stuff. Just worry about serving the Lord. You're uncursable, man. Is that okay? Oh, yeah, someone cursed me. Yeah. You know, they can't curse you. They can't. All he could do was prophesy. So in Numbers 24, and I'm not sure of the verse. I'd find it if I have to go and look for it. Could be 17. Let's just look 17 or 27. But in Numbers 24, when uh, for the third time he goes and eventually he says to King Balak, keep your money. <laughs> I can't say anything evil about these people. And he says, um, I see him. Verse 27. He said, I, I see him. But not now. I see him afar off. And what is he prophesying? 
There it is. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob. Woo! Centuries, centuries before, Balaam prophesied this. That guy that's held up as being a false prophet that ran after money. He says, a star of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of, of Sheth or Seth. Incredible. So they knew that scripture. So when constellations were right and they saw the specific special star, not only did they know the scriptures, not only did they roughly know the timing, but now they see the star and they start to follow the star all the way to Bethlehem. And I gave you the background. All the way to Bethlehem. Here comes these wise men. Another reason why they are called wise is because they were righteous and they were seeking God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the Bible calls them wise men because they were seeking the king. Amen? And I, you know, I want to just throw it in here. Are you getting something from this? Yeah, yeah. Something that I, I want to just give you here is this, is that the wisest thing that you can do is to fear and to serve God. That's wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then we need to continue with the wisdom. So here they come. Here's the Magi. Here's the wise men. Here are the Gentiles. So they prophetically symbolize that the Gentiles shall come in and be included with Israel. They were kings. So prophetically it represents that it will not just be the lowly, but the lowly all the way up to even kings will come to the brightness of the dawning, will come to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It gives me a prophetic hope because if we are included in Isaiah 60, and we are, then all of that passage should belong to us. It says they will come and they'll bring their riches with them, which is what the Magi did. Is that okay? And so they will come to the brightness of your dawning in Christ because the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. In other words, that there should be an exceptional favor upon us. Amen? We don't have to manipulate for all of these things. They will be attracted by the glory of the Lord upon us. We don't have to try and have to milk people. We don't have to try. They'll come to His glory in and upon us. And that's what Paul talks about in the book of Romans, that when the Jews see the glory has left because they are Ichabod, and they look at the church and they see that it is Kabod, it is filled with the glory of the Lord, they will be provoked to jealousy and say, the glory is on the church. We need to go there because that's where God is. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. And so the Magi come. Now, the um, traditional church sees that the Magi came about 12 days after the birth of Jesus. 12 days. But the, um, in the traditional church, there was a stage in England, I think it was in the 1500s, where Catholicism was not allowed to be practiced. It was outlawed by the king. And so a lot of their, even their catechism was kind of put in songs, carols. And I never understood this Christmas carol until I was studying this. I never understood this particular one. I just thought it was really bizarre. When you read some of those British carols, full of theology, you know, powerful. I mean, we three kings of Orient are. I mean, it's powerful. And many others. So, you know, partridge in a pear tree and dancing and hopping this and that. I used to think, what a stupid song. Even if, if Shireen remembers right, at one stage I said to her, don't sing that. It's a ridiculous Christmas carol. Stupid thing. 
a partridge in a pear tree. What the heck is that? I have since repented. Changed my mind. <laughs> but the Catholics would sing it, and uh, it was almost like a memory provoker. And it was one of those where you had to sing it over again and then add the next line, add the next line, add the next line. So it was a memory jolter, but it was almost sort of a catechism type of hymn. And so, you know, a partridge in a pear tree, and then two turtle doves, three French hens, four calling collie birds, five golden rings, six geese are laying, seven swans are swimming, eight maids are milking, nine ladies dancing, ten lords are leaping, eleven pipers piping, twelve drummers drumming. You said, I mean, that I mean, sounds American, you know, like, oh, let's have a go at writing a carol. It doesn't make sense. But it was a catechism for the children to sing to remember the partridge in the pear tree tree was Jesus crucified. Two turtle doves, Old and New Testament. Three French hens, the three virtues of faith, hope, and love. Four calling birds, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The five golden rings, the first five books of the Old Testament. Six geese are laying, six days of creation with the seventh day rest. Seven swans are swimming, the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. Eight maids are milking the eight beatitudes of the Holy Spirit. Nine ladies dancing the nine fruits of the Spirit. Ten lords are leaping the ten commandments. Eleven pipers piping the eleven faithful disciples. And twelve drummers drumming the twelve points of belief in the Apostles' Creed. Isn't that awesome? Come on, give God a hand. It's awesome. There's rich traditions. But so much of it is on the Word, and, and I think that, you know, our traditions can so surround the Word. It's good to get back to the Word. Isn't that right? And so it's just very interesting, just in case you wanted to know, that at the Feast of Epiphany, there was all kinds of rituals involved, but they would go and write. They would go from door to door on the 12th day. So they sang the 12 day of, days of Christmas because they thought the Magi came 12 days after the birth of Jesus. We'll just run through it quickly and show you that it was not possible for, to happen in 12 days. It was tradition. But they used to write with chalk. They'd go from house to house and write on each other's doors or the different doors or their own doors. The letters CMB. And some tradition says that it was the three names of the three wise men. Casper, Malchior, and Balthazar. But they say, actually, that's a later tradition, but it was CM, CMB from the Latin, and I won't be able to find it in my notes, but it's Christ bless this house. Christ bless this house. So they would go door to door, and they would put up mistletoe and all sorts of decorations and write CMB, standing for Christus, something about a, like a mansion, and then Benedicta. And it was, Christ bless this house. Christ bless this house. Christ bless. Isn't that awesome? Beautiful tradition. But it couldn't have happened in so few days because of the distance coming from Persia all the way through. And also because if we go into Luke chapter 2, let's have a quick look over there and then I'm going to wind down. If we quickly look in Luke chapter 2, and then we'll go back to Matthew 1 verse if we look in Luke chapter 2 from verse 21, after the shepherds, it says, And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named after the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now we go to verse 22. 
And when the days of a purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Forty days. That's where they celebrated candle mass. Okay? And to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord. In the book of Leviticus. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. I just want to stop there. That was an offering made by poor people. Because it was supposed to be a lamb. But if you could not afford a lamb, you could offer two turtle doves, which were, you know, you paid pennies for. And so when they offered the sacrifice according to the law of Moses, and you find that in, in the book of Leviticus, they couldn't afford a lamb. They couldn't afford a place to stay. If the Magi had visited by now, which was the 40th day, they would have had $120 million in the bank, dollars. They could have bought a lamb. Is that okay? They could have spent the money, but they couldn't. They still, still they were poor. So the visit of the Magi happened somewhere after the 40 days. Now we know from Matthew, after the Magi left, he worked out, King Herod worked out, that the age of Jesus could be anywhere up to two years of age. And so he had every boy executed from two years of age and down. So the Magi visited somewhere after 40 days and before two years of age. A wild guess, they say, six months to a year that the Magi arrived. It's really incredible that straight afterwards in Matthew chapter 2, we see when the Magi departed, and that's in, um, in verse 12, Matthew records something else. He doesn't record the dedication. But if we blend the scriptures, this is where it would fit in. So being warned of God in a dream, they should not return to Herod. They departed to their own country another way. Verse 13, look at this. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And that happened in the next verses after that. So the Magi go back, and then straight away he has a dream, go down to Egypt. The timing of God, the incredible timing of God. They lived in Egypt for about three years. Joseph, Mary, and the baby Jesus. To fulfill types and shadows and prophecies, out of Egypt I called my son. Just like he called Israel out of Egypt, he now calls his son Christ out of Egypt. In the same way he called his sons out of Egypt. And so that is fulfilled. Where did they get the funding from to go and live as poor people in another country for three years? The gifts of the Magi. God's timing was absolutely perfect. And saying, provision has been made. Kings brought it. Come on. I want to just say to you, every time God tells you to do something, you can step out in faith because the provision will be there. Whatever that provision is required. Is that okay? God will make sure the provision is there. If we walk in faithfulness with God, He will make sure that the provision is there for us to do what He's called us to do. Hallelujah. So we're going to see lots of provision in 2021. 
I'm prophesying already. So we're going to see a lot of provision because there's a lot of things that the Lord wants us to do. So the provision will be there. God is pro the vision. So for three years they live in Egypt. It's very interesting. I visited Egypt a few times. But they've got iconic places all over Egypt where Joseph and Mary went into Egypt, a well where they drank on their way in with the baby Jesus. The place where they stayed and people still visited because for three years... Jesus grew up in Egypt. And so there's iconic places where you can go and visit. And so out of Egypt, he called his son. And so God funded it. The amazing thing is, you know, there's a verse in the Bible that we read and uh, we spiritualize it. Where the Bible tells us that for our sake, though he was rich, yet became also very poor. Jesus was literally rich. But for our sakes, he didn't lean on it. He didn't depend on it. But God made sure by the provision of the Magi, by the Gentiles coming to the brightness of his dawning, that he had money to fund him. And yes, wealthy women also attended to him and helped with money. But Jesus had money. Joseph probably had the use of some of that money to start his business and to, you know, to be the carpenter, whatever he might have added prior to that. But there was sufficient to raise Jesus, and there was sufficient money to fund his entire ministry. In fact, there was so much money that the treasurer was stealing the money. He had enough money to buy himself a field, even some of the betrayal money. But he had access to great wealth. And Jesus never touched it. He never put his faith on it. It was there. God's provision was there. Come on, that's awesome, isn't it? So though he were rich for our sakes, literally became poor. Because one time disciples wanted to follow him, and he said, Son of man's got nowhere to lay his head. You know, foxes of holes, birds of the air of nests. Me. He didn't invest in all of that. He invested in preaching the gospel. No media, no hype, no television, no printing presses, and the gospel is still continuing to today. Because of some wise men that sought him out. And came and visited and brought great gifts. So straight away they went into Egypt and then they were, they were brought back. So I just wanted to bring out three things. There's many interpretations of the gold, myrrh, and frankincense. One that I studied, I really enjoyed. Gold, obviously, was because it was a gift fit for a king. If you read David, if you read Solomon, if you read the Ark of the Covenant, you know, which was at the throne of grace for God, I mean, gold was lavishly lavishly, richly used. And so gold very much speaks of, of his divinity. So naturally, gold would be part of the gifts. And the reason why it's listed first is because first, he's king. Is that right? And then frankincense was an element used, and there's so many scriptures for it. I did extensive study for a few days on it. But frankincense was very much used, frank incense. Incense was used, the incense was used, and it was very much involved in the tabernacle and in the temple. And it was incense that was used the, you know, for the burning of the incense and things like this. Without me saying too much, it's time for me to stop. And so supremely represented the prayers and the worship of the saints. And so the one who would mediate that would be the priest. So frankincense basically refers to the priestly ministry of Jesus. And so this baby would not only be king but he'd be priest, which also then spoke of a complete new order of things, which all the prophecies fulfilled of a new temple, a new city, you know, a new mountain, 
all of those things. And then, priest of God, we're all happy with that. So, Hebrews 7, you know, priest in order of Melchizedek without beginning of days, end of life, um, you know, so. And then the myrrh. And the myrrh was one of the elements used in the anointing oil. And it was aromatic, it was, you know, great um, smell, great fragrance. But if you read about it, it was used in the mixture of the anointing oil. And the anointing oil was used to anoint prophets and priests and kings. So this particular writer that I was studying, this theologian that I was um, studying, because a lot of people say the myrrh was preparation for his death. But for me, it doesn't fit with the picture of prophet, priest, and king, or king, priest, and prophet. And so the myrrh was used in the anointing oil, and Jesus supremely was going to be the prophet of God. It's very interesting that Moses got to a stage in his leadership where the people would not listen. And I don't know, I always read a little bit of frustration to it when he prophesied and said, God will raise up a prophet like me from amongst you brethren. And uh, to him you must listen, because you're not listening to me. And we see it fulfilled in the transfiguration because when Jesus was transfigured, God spoke and said, this is my son, hear him or listen to him. In other words, he's the final voice. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 to 3 tells us that in the past, God spoke to our forefathers in many and various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In other words, he's a prophet in the order of all the prophets. Jesus himself called himself a prophet. Did you know that? You know, when... um, Herod that was hoping that Jesus would perform a miracle, and then he said, tell that old fox. And that was not long after the beheading of John. He said, tell that old fox I will be here the next day and the third day, prophetic of his resurrection. And he said, because no prophet has died outside of Jerusalem. So he referred himself as a prophet. So he was the final prophet. John the Baptist, the final of the old. Jesus, the first and the greatest in the new. And so he was a prophet. So he came speaking the words of God. He did the will of God. He did the works of God. So he was the greatest prophet. Now, just in closing, this entire story, I just want to make an application. You can apply so many of these aspects to yourself. And the one that I really want to strongly emphasize is that whatever God calls us to do, he will make provision. Amen. Amen. And our thing is to believe that the glory of the Lord has risen upon us. Our part is to stay in the glory. And God says, I will bring kings and peoples to the brightness of your dawning, brightness of your light. Amen? They will be attracted by what is upon you. The Jews will eventually come to salvation because they will see the glory of the Lord is on the new temple. It left Jerusalem, but it's now here. And the third thing is the time spent. There's a bumper sticker somewhere, you know, that says, wise men still seek Jesus. Wise people seek the Lord. It's wisdom to seek the Lord. And so the four things that I mentioned, they used their time, and it was a long time, probably um, several months, to study the Scriptures, to follow the star, to make an epic journey, to arrive spot on time. So they invested their time. And so wise people invest their time in serving God. Second thing is, They employed all of their talents and all of their abilities. So they were trained in a specific way, and they used that to find Jesus. Amen? And so in whatever way that we are gifted and talented, so time, talents, whatever our talents are, wise people employ their talents to search and to seek 
and to serve God. And the third thing is their treasures. Their treasures. Because where your treasure is, there your heart is also. The satraps understood. They were in king's courts. They understood that if you take a gift to a king, it's appropriate for a king. That's why it was so much. When presidents give gifts to presidents, you know it's not a Parker pen. <laughs> it's not undies and socks. When kings give to kings, it's a significant amount. And that's why they came with that significant amount. And it, so they brought their treasures. It was a gift costly to them. And then last of all, they utilized their testimonies to serve God. Because when they came into the house and they saw the baby Jesus in the hands of Mary, the Bible says, and they fell down and worshipped him. You know, there's a whole protocol in those early days in the East on how you worshipped a king. You didn't just go in there and go, I was at my China. <laughs> Check you. Ooh, crowd and all, scepter. No, no, you groveled. You went down on your face. You did um, obeyance to the king. You said things that were honoring of a king. Even these days, you know, mom, you know, there's a bowing of the head at least to the Queen of England. And so even amongst our kings here in South Africa, there's a protocol in which you go in, you know, showing your hands. And I think even the chiefs in Venda, there's a particular way that you go in. You don't just go into their presence. These are royalty. And, and they came to the king of kings in worship. And so for 2021, I think we need to be expending our time our talents, our treasures, and our testimonies in serving God. Amen. Hallelujah. Did you get something? Hallelujah. Amen. So, Father, we want to thank you for your word. Rich, rich, rich. Lord, it's so full. And Lord, we want to thank you for every verse written. Nothing, nothing by chance. Not a word. Not a sentence uninspired. Thank you, Lord just for the, the gift of the Holy Spirit to be able to pull out treasures and connect verses. Verses that you wouldn't find with Strong's Concordance. But Lord, by your Spirit, you help us to search out the deep things of God. Lord, we want to thank you that mysteries are yours, but it's the honor of kings to search a matter out. And God, we want to continue be, being wise in 2021. Lord, searching out these matters and bringing them out as treasures. Father, we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. This be the truth. And Father, I just speak blessing of your people this morning. Lord, and I declare that those four T's will be our portion in 2021. Thank you for bringing us to 2020. And we're standing on the brink of another year. Lord, that time doesn't matter to you, but it's a time for us to pause and reflect. Lord, to re-engage and after rest to reposition ourselves, to take on the year. And Father, I want to thank you that you've given us time and talents, and treasures, and Lord, that we will employ them in your service, bringing testimony to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We all agreed and said, Amen. Amen. Amen.